Welcome to Sport Talks with Sport Profs. We created this community for students and for industry to join together as a community and talk sports and really it just be what's going on, what is the future looking like, and have a little bit of fun. So tonight we have Matt Shinetti joining us from TSN. Uh, and as we threw to him saying, we are going to be talking about all sports. However, I know one of your big specialties, of course, is football, CFL football in particular. Loved your latest social media uh, in terms of catching the ball on the sidelines. And Chelsea Vernhout's going to be talking about uh, social media in, right now in, in this time of COVID-19. So uh, we've got a number of topics. The way that the format works is we have about 10 top, no, we have 10 topics. We tee you up, we ask you a couple of questions and then people from the audience and the viewers are able to join in and, and either quiz you or challenge you or just give their perspective. We have um, a couple of people that are featured tonight. Each week we feature a couple of new people, um, but we have our, our, our regular insider, Dan Boomer Berlin and uh, our eSports expert in, in entertainment, Axel Lilmanis there in the red baseball cap. Um, we are talking about tennis tonight, and I and I did ask my dear friend, who actually you probably know, Matt used to work over at TSN, Tony Luchasano, um, and Chelsea Bernhout, who will talk on uh, the social media, and then a little bit later, Ianka Jess from She's for Sports will weigh in on what's going on in the U.S. soccer and the pathetic judging uh, judges ruling <laughs> with equal pay. So let's start it off with this. Um, Matt, number one pick 2020 CFL draft for East Carolina linebacker Jordan Williams to the BC Lions. Days after, or days before they announced the CFL, Randy Ambrosi, that the CFL is in need of a loan of 30 million up front and then 150 million. Uh, where does that leave? the draft going into, hey, we need some money. Does it, the players, are they a little bit scared about going back or where, where are you with that? Well, I can tell you that I have been receiving a lot of messages from players over the last couple of days, especially when the news came out from the Canadian press last Wednesday night. Um, I was surprised that the CFL was willing to have that number be put out there. If anyone is interested, Jeff Hamilton with the Winnipeg Free Press wrote a piece uh, just focusing on the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, but it's interesting you can extrapolate. You spoke to some economists uh, about the costs, uh, the savings, and what it might all mean for individual franchises. Now, the CFL is interesting because it really is a league in some ways of haves and have-nots. And what I mean by that is there are community-owned teams like Winnipeg Blue Bombers, Edmonton Eskimos, and Saskatchewan Rough Riders who make substantial amounts of money. I mean, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders are, when you think about the Toronto Maple Leafs and Montreal Canadiens, the most popular brands in Canadian sports, the Rough Riders are third on that list. And I'm not going to say that they have a license to print money in CFL terms, but they make a tremendous amount of revenue. But when you take a look at that number, 150 million, 30 million right away because of the lack of revenue, obviously, that the CFL is dealing with right now, Jeff Hamilton kind of digs deeper and uncovers um, that it would be about $10, million, 10 to $15 million that the, uh, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers could lose if there is no season. Players have been reaching out to me, asking me constantly if I think there's going to be a season. This is the thing about the CFL that is, makes it unique when we're discussing in the same terms of the NBA, whether they're going to centralize 
the NHL, where they're going to centralize. You know, you talked about the NHL, uh, in, uh, for instance, Edmonton and Vancouver. My colleague Ryan Rashog is reporting that those two cities have pitched to be hub cities. The CFL can't have a hub city because many of the players that play in the CFL live in the United States. And right now, if that border stays closed, essentially there can't be a season because you can't really have um, traffic there. And sure, you can you can start to uh, talk about possibly the CFL petitioning the federal government for spe- special dispensation and considering these these some of these players private contractors that would come up. But then it's quarantining, it's testing. And from a production side, when you're talking about putting the product on TV, which I would be very much a part of, how does that affect someone like myself and the staff at TSN because we are really the, the primary sponsor of the CFL? Where do I think it goes from here? I, I will say what I said to one prominent player, uh, Trevor Harris, the quarterback for the Edmonton Eskimos, in that I said, if the CFL, if the border can open up and there's a possibility to play without um, fans in the stands, I know for a fact that presidents of teams have been saying to their staff, we are going to play without fans in the stands, even though one of the main economic drivers for the CFL is gate revenue. I find it right now, given all the things that are surrounding what's going on in the States and reopenings and and timetables, especially up here, I would say I'm anxious um, about whether or not there will be a season. And I don't know uh, what the the CFL's overall strategy was to try to get out in front and say there's $150 million, because even myself, who's around the league a lot, I don't know how they came up with that, that number. Um, and I think the story of this season, and I don't necessarily think the CFL at this point is at the tipping point of an existential crisis. I think, though, we're getting to a point where um, all these scenarios they talk about, where the revenue is going to come, who's going to subsidize the league, how players are going to get up here, it ultimately all comes down to that border. If that border stays closed, there will not be a season. Even if they want to start it in September or mid-September, it doesn't matter because unlike every other sport, the CFL needs that border to be open. So the loan that they're looking for, I see it as a bridge loan. Um, and, you know, this is a very impartial show. So, and we're, we've got great relationship with our, with, with TSN. We have a great relationship with Bell, Rogers. Couldn't Bell, Rogers just write a check? That um, is obviously a question that I, I, that I would defer to, you know, guys like Paul Graham and Stuart Johnson and, and Sean Redman, all the, all the executive level people at TSM. You know, uh, in this Winnipeg Free Press piece, they do allude to the fact that the, um, the TSM's contract, its, its contract does cover um, uh, the salary cap for every team, which is about $5.5 million. So basically, it's a $50 million a year deal or just around that, that area. If you don't, if you don't have a season and TSN has nothing to put on TV, then they can't fulfill the contract. Um, I don't want to speak out of turn, but could the CFL then go to its biggest partner and ask if they don't get it from the federal government, that bridge loan, look and say, can't we work something out here? Um, I imagine those discussions have happened. I can tell you this, that Stuart Johnson, the president of our, our company is an incredible CFL fan. He is always, he's a season ticket holder at Argos games. I see him all the time. He is passionate about the game. It is a huge driver for our Canadian uh, content. Um, 
again, not speaking out of turn, I imagine all of those discussions and decisions are also happening at the executive level for TSN as they would be within the, uh, the upper echelons of the CFL. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing then, this is not something that is abnormal in a sport right now. Uh, MLS, we'll move on to MLS, um, where they are basically saying that hopefully, um, you know, well, they've got some new franchises. Let's see if they're going to be able to move forward with that without, with a, with a shortened season. So, um, you know, this is basically a really good news because they are starting to allow the players start to go back to, to playing on their team field. Uh, Joe and, and Matt, could you guys um, share with us like the shortened season starting June 8th? What will that look like, Matt? Well, you know, it, 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 this has to be pointed out about MLS, which I think is really interesting. MLS is in a contract year in terms of renegotiating um, viewership rights. So they are, I would say, probably more than most leagues wanting to get out there because, well, you speak about their, their uh, franchise fees. MLS right now, you talk about the franchise fee they had for Toronto FC, which I don't want to be quoted on it, but was you know, something in the range of, I think it like a few dozen million dollars, 24 to $30 million. Now it's, when you talk about the money that Nashville FC paid and FC Cincinnati paid, we're talking about, you know, in the hundreds of millions range. And uh, that shortened season, the way that they would construct it, because that they tried to actually make the season more economical, because the season at one point was running, you know, almost, you know, 11 months of the 10, 11 months of the year, just given how they are accommodating for international breaks. Uh, this would be interesting, especially from a Canadian perspective, because they have trouble, especially over here, female field with the quality of the pitch. So I would, I would think that a shortened season would have to take into consideration again, especially with the amount of Canadian teams, if they're going to have hub cities, it, the border, but also just the weather, because um, there have been uh, complaints in the past from players just about the quality of play in here in Montreal, just because of the weather getting into the later months of the season. Joe? Joe, sorry, you're on mute. I'm trying to unmute you. Sorry, forgot to unmute. Uh, <laughs> um, I was just going to say, though, that I mean, the, the, the directive that MLS put out uh, that teams as of Wednesday can start doing individual player workouts and things like that. I guess it's trying to signal that, you know, whatever, whatever they can possibly do to get the season going, they're trying to by with this. It seems like all those major sports are trying to get to that point of saying, well, we've got our, you know, we've got individual player team workouts. And as long as it's not conflicting with the public health policies of the cities that they're in, and this, there's all these different parameters that roll around it, but it's, but it does seem like, everything about this pandemic has to be about small steps, right? Like it seems like everything has to be in this small step and like you won't get into a store until at least it has curbside um, pickup. And then maybe, you know, it's sort of, you gotta keep going through all these little small steps. So, you know, I was not hopeful at all for MLS. And then, you know, when he's, I see this, I'm such a fan that I, I'm trying to be hopeful. Well, I think there's an imperative. I think they absolutely need to get a season in just because of financially, like MLS is not in the echelon of the NHL or the NBA yeah. or the NFL. Like they need that revenue this year. And however they can do it, I imagine that Don Garber, the commissioner of MLS, will try to push because especially given the contracts that they have up, they absolutely need the revenue. But what you said about also the borders, I mean, I mean, that really does, that counts for a lot of the sports. 
you know, if the border isn't open. And we don't know when and if that is actually ever going to happen. So America needs baseball. That was a quote by, I don't even like to mention the man's name, Mitch McConnell in the U.S., uh, came out and said this to the commissioner of MLB, Dan Berlin and, and Matt, this is um, empty stadiums. We've seen it with Taiwan baseball. We now have an announcement with South Korea and baseball here in, in Canada. Uh, baseball seems like a possibility and it, it being that, you know, for the most part, with the exception of the Toronto Blue Jays are American. So, uh, I mean, well, not American, but American team, not the players. How are we going to get this started? Is it three divisions, June? You seeing this a July 4th start, Matt? Well, and, I, and I'm sure Jeff, um, sorry, Jeff, uh, Dan Berlin saw Jeff Passan's article a few weeks ago in which he pitched the whole idea of this, you know, biodome thing in Glendale and, and, and uh, different parts of, the, of Phoenix, Arizona. Um, I think given some of the concerns that uh, Major League Baseball's player union, which again is the strongest union, if anyone knows labor relations uh, history in, in professional sports, the MLB players union is incredibly powerful. I mean, it just look, Montreal Expos fans will talk to you about the 1994 season, lot season forever and ever and ever. Um, I know that there have been concerns reading recently just that players want to see as much as they want to play, you're getting a faction of players who want to play, yes, and then other players who are talking about when can they see their families and not liking the idea of being holed up in, um, in hotels. You know, you're not even just talking about the players. You know, you're talking about medical staff. You're talking about um, ancillary staff with teams and buildings. Uh, the way that I saw some of those initial reports, you know, having it because, again, there are these stadiums that they have for uh, spring training are, and I've been to, at least the one that, that's in Dunedin, are, are, are quite large. So you could theoretically have them in there. But again, it's, it's, it's not just, okay, let's, put the, let's just go ahead and put the players in the ballpark, um, but also just what do you do with production staff? What do you do with, um, with all those around, uh, the, the, uh, around the stadium, but also who associate with players? What do you do with staff inside the hotel? There are just so many things. You're asking people to kind of, hold themselves up for the benefit of, of putting baseball on air. There's just so many variables that is hard, that are hard to account for. Yeah. Well, I mean, how starved are broadcasters and fans alike for baseball right now? Uh, case in point, ESPN, and I presume TSN to a point as well, will televise South Korea's uh, baseball season beginning with tomorrow's opening night. I guess that qualifies at 1 a.m. Eastern time. And they're actually going to be showing six games a week, if you can believe it. But actually, there was a, a recent report uh, today out of the San Diego Union Tribune about a new reported plan that seems to be gaining some traction with players. At least it's the one that's being most talked about right now, this idea that baseball would resume in 10 to 12 different states with their own hub city. Cities, uh, that would encompass about 20 Major League Baseball parks. Uh, the goal right now for MLB is to try to start their season on July 1st, but there's still a bit of a ways away from being able logistically, as Matt refers to, from everything it's going to take to make that happen. But the feeling is, is that according to this report, the drop dead date would be August 1st, uh, which would be the latest that they could get a, a season, a partial season, 
with 100 games in and still have the playoffs end by November. Now, there was some earlier talk about, hey, well, let's play the World Series in Vegas in December. But actually, it sounds like Major League Baseball, according to this report, are against that. They don't want to have any interference with the start of the 2021 season. So it looks best case like July 1st, 10 to 12 cities based in the U.S. So we wouldn't see any baseball really in Toronto, most likely this summer, with the hope that things can get underway before August. Dan, does the U.S., uh, does Canada need baseball as much as the U.S. does? Well, as a baseball player, I would say yes. I mean, my the best thing I posted all week on Facebook was this picture and this video of a of a dad throwing batting practice to his young son who hit his first ever home run in batting practice. Just the two of them, and the the dad's reaction is classic. So, if you get a chance, try to find that. I think I think Canada needs baseball. I think we we need anything that we can interact with that evokes passion and the ability to you know, get out of our homes potentially or experience something other than uh, what the latest series on Netflix is. But at the end of the day, I think we have to exercise vigilance and prudence first. We have to be smart and then with the hopes that that things work out. But in the meantime, uh, we're going to find household names out of the Korean Baseball Association. I can hardly wait. So backflips, backflips are amazing in Korean baseball, by the way. If you get a chance, Go on YouTube and watch Korean baseball backflips. It, 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 it is just hours of incredible fun. <laughs> so it leads us to more organizations. And Luch, is, Luch I call him Luch. Every, actually, almost everyone calls him Luch. Everyone and their her. mother calls me Luch, yes. <laughs> Luch, Luchi. I'm even, I'm even representing for, for Matt tonight. There you go. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Luch. The, the tennis. This is there's so much coming out of tennis right now, and Ianka, I could ask you this as well, but I'm going to stick with Luch. Um, the devastation of COVID-19 in New York City. There's conversation about already about moving the U.S. Open. Our dear Bianca Andreescu winning the U.S. Open last year to defend her title may take place in the Indian Wells. Uh, contingency planning seems to be everywhere. So. Uh, w- do you see a lot of tournaments in tennis? Uh, there's two topics here. Are the tournaments in tennis, U.S. Open going to Indian Wells? What do you think um, about that location? I think the location is great. Indian Wells is uh, a world-class, um, it's a world-class arena for sure for, for, uh, for a major. I don't think there's any uh, issues there. I think the biggest issue is when, they're want, when they want to run the U.S. Open and then a week later they want to do the French Open in Paris. So you basically have two grand slams to be within on two different surfaces to happen within three weeks, which I think is just insane. Um, first and foremost, uh, secondly, I mean, I can understand them wanting to run one major, but to run the two majors in three weeks is, is just insanity. I don't think the players will go for it, to be honest. So, I, okay. I'm going to have, uh, on your point, Luke, by the way, great hair. <laughs> yes, the lions. The lions sleeps tonight. Uh, you know, this is something a, a big topic, Matt. Uh, not only are they thinking about having the U.S. Open in Indian Wells, but Roger Federer and Andy Murray are supporting ATP and WTA joining forces. Now is the time, um, and we're seeing this are very interesting in terms of gender equity pay. So a big part of this is about 
opening up. I mean, 2005, Serena Williams and her sister Venus were the ones that were the first one. Well, they weren't the first. Billie Jean King was the first, but really were the ones that achieved equal pay. So, you know, what do you think about Andy Murray and Federer pushing for these two organizations to join? I have always thought that Andy Murray in particular has tried to be on the right side of history with this, um, especially having a, a, a prominent, very, um, uh, a, a major woman, a female major woman, uh, the, the, the name escapes you right now. She won the French, uh, she won the French open. Uh, having um, always stating the importance of raising the women's game to the exact same level uh, as the men's game, Roger Federer as well uh, coming out um, and, not only that, but also talking about the uh, uh, the subsidy to help out um, other uh, players outside the top 250. I might have that number wrong, but I, I think it's it's so important because the one thing that we've seen out of tennis over the last 10 to 15 years is, especially the last 10 years, is more and more athletes, especially on the male side, speaking up and saying there should be accountability as, as a male athlete. I should be accountable and I should be lifting up my, my fellow competitors, irrespective of, of gender. Um, I think, and I've always cherished uh, Andy Murray's thoughts on it. Um, and I think this is the time to finally uh, kind of bridge what I think is an archaic gap between the WTA and the ATP because, you know, the athletes themselves are, are competing on the same surfaces. Uh, the competition in, in, in both ranks is, is always been fierce. And, I believe that if you're going to do it, um, and there should be a reset now, should be the time. Um, I also want to point out that, uh, although it's kind of deviating from the topic just a little bit, Novak Djokovic talking about the fact that he won't take a um, he won't take a vaccine if there is one in there, if there if if one is mandated for the players to take, is interesting because tennis has always been something where. Um, you get to see someone fully exposed on the court and, and, and they're, they're, because they're on their own walking, talking brands, especially in this age of social media and prominence, uh, you see players ha like coming out and speaking out for themselves. And I don't know what, you know, I'm still trying to figure out because I did watch a bit of the Instagram live that Novak Djokovic had after he, um, he stated that he would have to consider whether or not he would take a vaccine if there was one out there. Um, tennis is just always interesting in that, but to, to, to that point about Andy Murray and Roger Federer, um, th there is no, there is no argument for me. It's, it's pay equity and there's nothing else. Luch? Yeah, I agree with it. I, I believe that, you know what, they, like Matt says, they play on the same surface. Um, if you've seen the women's game as many times as I have, uh, you, you really truly understand the athleticism that they have and, uh, they're just a phenomenal, phenomenal athletes. And so I agree with that. And just to follow up on Matt's point about, um, you know, the, the whole Roger Federer, Roger Federer and um, um, Andy Murray, and also Billie Jean King was also a big, huge proponent of that she has been forever. So she, to me, she's like, I put her up at, you know, uh, uh, on the, uh, on Mount Olympus at the very top, that's for sure. And, uh, but the one thing, Emily, I don't know if anybody remembers Emily Moresmo. Moresmo. Yeah. yeah. And she came out and said that she also feels that if there isn't a uh, vaccine, that there won't be a 2020 tennis season at all. She feels that it's too, too risque to put the players and any of the managers uh, at risk. And they think that if one person were to test positive, and I, and I say this for all the sports, you know, and I know that 
Major League Baseball, and Dan, you want to see baseball like everybody else. However, all it's going to take is one person to test positive, and you're going to shut everything down again. And, and I think that's what we're missing out on this is, you know, Matt said that it takes a lot of people, you know, to run, whether it be, you know, having been at TSN for 14 years and I got to, you know, know all the guys behind, you know, the production guys. And, you know, the number of people that are involved to run an event, uh, a live event especially, I think it's too risky personally. So this is not the first that we're hearing about. Uh, yeah, I, I happen to agree with you. And actually in the chat, Chelsea's even has said here, umpires need baseball too. Uh, there's so many different stakeholders that are involved um, in this and, and taking the right steps forward. But now is the time uh, to address uh, issues of gender and Anka, Ianka, um, this is this is up your alley, uh, my alley. Everyone on this uh, this call tonight. I mean, we're all we're all thinking about gender equity, and and so tennis. It's a 50-50. Roger Federer, Andy Murray, and Andy Murray has been hugely supportive of this. Um, as Serena Williams pushed her way. We've got Billie Jean King pushing her way for equal pay. Seems like this is a space, but we're not seeing it in hockey. We're not seeing it in soccer. Yeah. And as I said to you, the most pathetic ruling and some of the headlines that I have seen, um, it, it, it just, it boggles my mind that in 2020, that a, a judge would say, well, you played more games and you got paid more, that that is the rationale. It doesn't even make sense. Yeah, you know, we're, we're still in this place. And if you look at it, even outside of sports, you look at other sectors, women are still making less than men. And, you know, even if we're doing the same job, and it's a really big problem. I mean, we see it a lot in sports here. We know that the WNBA last year just went through their collective bargaining agreement and just the things the women were fighting for, you know, whether it's the marketing, more marketing dollars or um, you know, more measures to support them on maternity leave. Um, you know, these are really basic things that uh, these women need to survive and live. And it's disappointing that, um, you know, we're still here. And, and the women's uh, soccer team, they really faced a big blow with that ruling. Um, I'm really hoping that they'll appeal uh, the judge's ruling or, you know, you, you, you never want anybody to really settle. You want them to appeal because the problem is the foundation is broken. You know, when you look at women's contracts and sports, you look at uh, some of the things that they, they, they go through when they're uh, trying to bargain, you know, agreements, they're still going through um, a lot of trying to prove why they should be getting more money or why they should be getting more sponsorships. Like we're still at that place where the foundation is broken. You know, I'm not sure on their end if it's, you know, working with, a, with different lawyers and the smartest people in the room to really um, make sure that the, the contracts that uh, younger players will enter into will, will have that foundation where they will be getting paid the same as men. They will be getting, um, you know, proper travel travel care when they travel. They will be getting proper maternity leave. You know, it, it's just mind boggling that we're still here. It's 2020 and we're still here when it comes to women's sports and fighting for those issues. And the stance that the, the judge took with looking at overall compensation um, outside of maybe the rate of pay or looking at the bonuses the men make, you know, more bonuses than maybe the women do on the team. Like it, it's a, there's very intricate, you know, legal things that they're pointing to and we're still um, not solving the issue. So I think for, for most women and, and even men who are allies for uh, gender equity and pay equity for women, you know, it's frustrating. Especially when you're thinking about, you know, um, so you play actually more games. So the women are playing more games than the men. And so that was the mathematics of why they get paid more, but per game, they're not getting paid more. Uh, so Matt, 
you know, we see this and in, in, in Dan, um, CFL, the number of games, the number of games that are replayed in MLB, the number of games that are played in the NFL. I mean, these are all taken into consideration how many games and how long the seasons are because the athletes can only take so much on their body. The length of their careers are only so long. So for every uh, you know, dollar ten that a, a male makes versus, let's say, the dollar, and I think it's probably more than it's, the ten percent delta is not is mm-hmm. is is probably less than that. I'm going to say it's probably seventy five percent versus that ten um, percent. Uh, but uh, the the main thing that I you know you're you have to work ten more years to make the same amount, or you have to play ten more games to make the same amount, and it is abusive to the body, and it creates you know a lesser career for these, a higher chance of getting injury. So um, when are we going to see equal pay, Matt? Uh, well, if I had that answer, um, this is something that's very close to my heart. Um, uh, my girlfriend competed internationally for our country and at one point had to um, pay to play. Uh, I, I find that um, disturbing, uh, even at the time that she was competing. I, um, you know, you could read into the, the, the decision in many different ways. The, the district court judge was a George W. Bush appointee. Um, so there's obviously possibly that political tinge there. Uh, I am, although heartened by the growing clarion call from those around um, the sport, uh, and especially sponsors too, to say enough is enough. There is th- this argument that um, the former head of the U.S. Federation put out about skill level, uh, about um, competition, depth of competition, was was a pathetic and, and baseless argument. It was um, based upon nothing than, you know, uh, just casting aspersions for the sake of casting them. The power of persuasion, I think, is going to grow um, because the the argument is rock solid. There is nothing. There is nothing in that argument. And if any, and if anything, you, you could you could you could get into the weeds and dice everything in terms of more games, the games they play, the travel, uh, the other variables. But here's here's the rub. They are the best team in the world, and not by a li- and not by a little bit. And they deserve to be compensated like the best team in the world. And it's high time that if we that if we acknowledge excellence irrespective of gender and that sounds like a very easy political opinion and it shouldn't be it just should be fact um so as one member of the u.s women's team said they expected this they expected it would be a fight but seeing the level of engagement especially on social media seeing the level of engagement in the media you're starting to see um that this isn't something that's going to be swept away nor nor should it be it's it's it takes it's taken way too long to get here to even have this purposeful conversation, but I am I'm heartened at least to know that there's there's persistence and there's going to be perseverance. And I have no doubt, just given you could see how the U.S. women's team has really become a standard bearer for uh, pay equity for women uh, across all sports, that there is going to be change. So what I think, and I'd love Karen Sebastian to weigh in here too, who's who. Karen, to the extent you feel comfortable, um, an executive producer over at CBC. Um, I look at this and one of the questions, uh, well, one of the comments that came out was Joe Biden said that when he becomes president, he's going to stop giving funding to um, the U.S. national team. Um, And there was a lot on Twitter saying, 
well, you know, if hockey can't make it, maybe we, you know, if, if the CFL goes to the government and asks for $150 million, then surely they can give women's hockey and women's soccer. Now, for the record, the CWHL board did go to the Canadian government and did request funding for the Canadian Women's Hockey League. And they were told that the reason why was because they were paid a salary. Now the salary was not a salary, it was a stipend. It was anywhere from $1,000 to $10,000, just, just for the record. And that basically paid for their equipment and maybe some travel and training and to take time off work. I mean, $1,000 and saying that that was, <laughs> uh, anyway, we'll, we'll go on, we'll, we'll go there. But what is it that the broadcasters and the sponsors and the organizations, the governing bodies can do to make this change? Because this should not be as difficult as it is. Yeah, it's frustrating that women were still fighting, but you know, I think you're right. There are some responsibilities from the governing bodies, from the unions, from the sponsors. Where, how can we get to a foundation where uh, if a woman's being presented a sponsorship and she's a high performance athlete, you know, should they be looking at what uh, a sponsorship model that they have worked out with another um, league that they've given to a male athlete? And should they also be on par? I mean, another issue uh, with the, the women's national team was, you know, there was some argument as to talk about the structure of the women's contract. So they were saying in some of the arguments, like was the contract the same as the men's and, and nobody could prove if uh, women, the women were offered the same things in the contract that the men got and that in the contract that they ended up getting. So I think we just need to start at that level as to if you're offering a sponsorship to a female athlete, it should be the same as you're offering to a man, whatever's inside that contract. Again, I'm not a lawyer, but we have to get on that, that equal playing field because we're not. Broadcasters, Karen, what can we be doing in the broadcast side? Historically, this has been going on for a long time. And, you know, it's, I think from my perspective, there's the two biggest things are it has to start with the federations, the sport federations and the COC. Historically, we know the COC, the Canadian Olympic Committee in the past would give certain sports and funding and others not. And we all know stories of athletes that had to have day jobs instead of being an athlete. So, I think it has to start at the Canadian Olympic level and with um, sport federations across the table that they see all their athletes as equal and not the men's teams more pro higher profile or stronger than, than women. Um, and the world now knows that, you know, Rio Olympics, those 18 gold, like medals came from the Canadian women. Tokyo was going to have Canadian women. So at CBC, being the Olympic network, we have made a, a mandate and a commitment to have 50% of our hours of coverage and 50% of our online articles and 50% of our social media around women's sport. So we can do that as a broadcaster. TSN has to do more. They've started, they did a great job with the FIFA World Cup soccer and doing stuff, but they're out there and need to do more. Rogers, we've seen stuff at Sportsnet where they've done women's hockey games, um, you know, and, and a woman could host a hockey game. Why can't women be play by play voices? Why are, why is society more comfortable with a man's voice? Why are women just sideline reporters? Why aren't women hosts and anchoring things like Andy Petrillo has at, on CBC and TSN? And so it's turning, it's coming around. So as broadcasters across this country, we're stepping up and making commitments at all three major networks. I think the Canadian Olympic Committee has made a lot of changes and now is supporting their women athletes and women's teams specifically like women's rugby women's soccer in a better way and now the last little thing is about sort of the 
pro sports and federations and you know the nhl should be behind a women's hockey league how hard is this it's not hard <laughs> please just do it and be be have the balls to do it and step up and have a voice because the public will follow because if we keep waiting for joe public to tune in and watch you know we know that sometimes it's not going to happen men's sports are more popular men's sports are sometimes more dynamic and more extreme but at some point if the sports world itself buys into it and sells it out there you know the public will accept it <laughs> they will we have that power so i don't know it's taking a long time it's got it's got to get there now and enough has been done certainly with tennis and certainly with golf when we look at and you guys have talked a lot about your pro sports that are coming back i mean hello it's golf ricky fowler and dj and uh who else is involved in it mcelroy their, their golf is going to get going here in two weeks and doing stuff so brooke henderson is one of the best women golfers in the world and she's Canadian and you know that's a star and let's celebrate her you know I think there's Laurel if I could just chime yeah. in and Sebi I mean such great points and you know it's interesting you say you know you hope the NHL would have you know quote unquote the balls to step up and do something about this I think one of the big fundamental issues is the fact that you have men making these decisions we, we need, you know, we need decision makers to be women and have an understanding of both sides of the argument here. I, I think it's a huge aspect in all of this is if we're expecting, you know, a generation of old men or decision makers that, who are men who traditionally have not been consistent toward equal rights between genders, I, I it just, it seems like, uh, you know, the frustration continues to mount regarding trying to persuade them rather than a new generation of open-minded decision makers, um, male and female, and of all, you know, backgrounds who want to come together and, and recognize equality as a new way forward. So I think it, you know, that that's just one thing, but, you know, asking Gary Bettman to have a new way of thinking is almost like, I don't know. I don't know if he's really capable of it, to be honest. And I say that with all due respect, because we we continue to hope and push the envelope and push the agenda for equal rights. Because they, as, as Matt said originally, there's no other argument other than we should have equal rights. There's there's no other. There's really no other way to put it. So Lindsay and Tony Luch. So Lindsay, you've got 20 seconds, and Luch, you've got 10 to weigh in here. Okay, um, Lindsay, you go first. Okay. Hi. First of all, uh, my friend Juliana let me join this. And I've actually, uh, I, I go to school at Syracuse University and I just became a member of the Professional Women's Hockey Player Association today. So uh, I really appreciate all of your perspectives on, on how to get exposure and how to get a league. And uh, so I just wanted to throw that out there. Coming from a, an American school and I'm actually going, I'm in sports broadcasting for my master's and seeing there's not a lot of coverage of women's hockey in the States at all. So applause to Canadian broadcasts. Cause I've been watching the C the CWHL uh, reruns of their championships. So I just wanted to chime in and say, I really appreciate all your perspectives and fingers crossed we can get a league here soon. Well, uh, let me just clarify, uh, Lindsay. Um, I think it's great that you think that we show it a lot, but we don't, we have four broadcasts. We've in the past, the CWHL had four broadcasts. Uh, what they were doing and it was what they were doing, but it was also Ryerson University students doing it was helping them streamcast. So 
Uh, but Laurel, that's going to get better. I have to say, we cover a lot of women's hockey. TSN's covered women's hockey. CBC has covered it. The friendlies and the streaming stuff now is uh, certainly at CBC and all the other networks are starting to stream a lot more sport, even with minimal production. So I think it was turning towards, it's still moving toward being. Okay, so Karen, then the I'll US, They have a lot of sport coverage in the US. You got to get to Comcast and those local broadcasters. I'll challenge you on it though. So CWHL hockey, as I said, had four broadcasts, which were not paid for. So the, it's a major professional women's sport. And I don't know what CBC paid for the Olympics, but I, I, I can only guess what they uh, would each of the broadcasters pay for tennis or pay for uh, NHL hockey, $5.2 billion for Roger. So, but women's hockey is like, oh, well, we'll, we'll give you four broadcasts, but by the way, we're not going to pay a license right for it. That's where you start, Laurel, and then it builds from there. And, you know, Sportsnet is the hockey broadcaster in this country, and they have streaming platforms and they have the ability to build with that. So that has to become part of their mandate then to cover a certain percentage of women's hockey in this country. Ayanka? You know, I'm listening to everybody and it, it's, it's, it's not a very easy, um, you know, issue to tackle. But I think in terms of social culture and social norms, we have not normalized the narrative that women's sports is, will sell, people will watch it. There are so many different studies and reports out there that have um, surveyed men and women and men will watch women's sports. We're just in a place still where we're relying on the stereotypes and the, the, the cultural issues where, you know, you'll get on Twitter and you'll see guys and different people, whoever trolls saying women's sports isn't going to sell. Nobody wants to watch it. We're still resting on those stereotypes and those, you know, those old outdated thoughts that we've had of women and, and things have progressed. I think if the companies can come together, whether it's the broadcasters and the, the unions and the sports foundations to say, women's sports is going to sell people want to watch it let's put together a really great product and put it out there but we're not there yet you know um i think it was dan that said it's just the right thing to do pay equity is the right thing to do let's let's move forward and do it but we're you know we're still here people are still digging their heels in and they're still resting on uh old outdated thoughts and stereotypes of how, how they think the public perceives women in sports and it's a huge problem i mean i'm like the rest of you always looking for content you know during covid and you know you're seeing the old blue jays games that's great we're all fans the old uh you know michael jordan or the old basketball games but where's the, the where are women's sports you know women have been playing sports for a very long time so let's you know include um some old um you know uh, games from different sports that include women um, i can't I, I can't sit here and listen to this because rewind wednesday on cbc and on Saturdays on CBC Sports, we just did the Women of Rio show on Saturday. We have women's rugby this Wednesday. The week before that, we had women's soccer. So, it, I mean, if it's one network, we're doing it. That's all I want to say, just for Yeah, I know, and I have seen stuff on CBC putting stuff out there. And I, as I said, I'm on Twitter all the time. I'm going to weigh in too. Rio stuff. Uh, more could be done. That's all I'm saying. I'm not pointing at one broadcaster. Just more could be done. There's so many stories to tell of women in sports. And I just don't feel like enough has been told and that's why for the last two weeks i said i'm going to just interview women in sports whether they're olympians whether they're uh you know not olympians and just talk to them and get their voices out there and if we have to do that through social media whether it's this millennial generation that's saying i'm not going to wait 
I'm just going to get up there and just put some content out there with these women. We got to start somewhere. And again, I, I do see CBC doing stuff and, and other broadcasters when there are different, you know, themed nights like, you know, International Women's Day and having women, um, you know, oversee the production of a game. But I think more can still be done. So we, we got to move on from this topic. Clearly, we need yeah. to have an evening where all 10 topics are about women's sports because this is can be highly debatable. Uh, sponsors and sponsors and what their uh, role happens to be and and uh, and and it's great I'm glad that Karen you're showing um, the Rio games where this is happening but the reality is is that right now the women's soccer is not getting paid the same women's hockey was shut down I mean there's a lot of different things that are going on right now in women's sports so let's let's come back to that um, on a different but we're gonna move on here Matt um, are you do you play sport video games uh, I, I probably spent way too much time uh, on FIFA when I was younger <laughs> and and uh, lived on my own. Um, but yeah, no, I, I spent way too much time on uh, on on playing FIFA. Way too many hours. And, and as a fan, what do you love about it? Uh, the engagement level. Um, being a, a very passionate soccer fan, my my whole life, I uh, you. Mm you kind of sometimes need a, an emotional outlet because especially soccer and, and basketball as well, uh, they, um, especially the way they play the game, the development of the graphics, the interaction um, based on all of the different platforms when you're actually playing online um, feels almost like we saw the videos of Sergio Aguero last week where his reaction to missing a goal in the game was the same reaction he had while he was streaming it. it um, Esports has gotten to that level where the line between what you thought would be the competitive level on the field is the same now when you're actually playing the game. Um, you know, I won't go so far as to say the, the athleticism is equal because I don't believe it is, but just the, the engagement, the emotions, it, it stirs out of people. And this is esports time, really. I mean, when you, you know, I speak to, you know, we, we have an esports correspondent, Marissa Roberto at, uh, at TSN and like the level of engagement intensity and um, the opportunity for that platform. Now, this, this is really the time. I mean, it was already, you know, it's a billion dollar industry. Let's not get ourselves, but this was, I think this is a time where that level of engagement can only increase. So uh, yeah, billion dollar industry, the, the latest was the Kentucky Derby in a virtual race. Axel Lil Manis, we have here tonight. Also Matt, who's an expert on esports and entertainment. Axel, the Kentucky Derby, NBA 2K, NHL's now launched um, some new programming in the sport video game space. This is pretty exciting. It is, and I think uh, in the in the weeks we've talked about esports, we've talked about experimentation, we've talked a lot about you know um, them adjusting to the circumstances that have been presented to them. And what we do know about esports is it's a big business and sports, traditional sports is a big business and every decision is about how to preserve and grow the business. I think anybody um, out, you know, working right now is not necessarily looking at um, uh, customer acquisition at this point. It's all about customer retention, fan retention, preserving communities that you've built up over a long period of time. And um, I think one reason you're hearing a lot about esports now and maybe you weren't hearing about it as much a year ago is because big businesses, big brands, uh, big names have gotten involved in these sports and is generating a lot more uh, um, headlines. And so um, 
uh, I, I know you raised uh, three topics there. I'll talk about the Kentucky Derby last because it's not esports, but it is all about community preservation uh, first and foremost. Um, on the NBA uh, 2K side, uh, lots of excitement there in that uh, we are, uh, they're about to embark on their third season, uh, the NBA, NBA 2K League uh, tomorrow night at seven o'clock. Um, it's a league that's growing in terms of number of teams. So you have 23 teams competing for uh, $1.4 million. Um, these are not professional athletes in, you know, in terms of these are not NBA players who are tinkering on, in the gaming space. These are esports athletes who are good at NBA 2K. And of the 50 million NBA 2K players or people engaged with this sport around the world, 100 get chosen to join, get drafted into this league. Um, so it's definitely um, a skill-based skill -based league and one that the NBA is paying a little bit more attention to. Now, they are, uh, uh, it's a joint venture, the NBA 2K League uh, between the NBA and um, Take-Two Interactive who, own, who make the game. Um, but the NBA does not treat this as a number one priority. Um, and as a result, uh, the NBA, this eSports this e League has not grown maybe in the same ways as you're hearing in other, in other areas of eSports. But um, I'm optimistic in that I think that's going to change soon because of some of the experimentation that's happening. And they ran that um, uh, NBA 2K Players Tournament Challenge not too long ago that had a lot of NBA participants, you know, playing around and trash talking each other, which was a lot of fun for audiences. And I think it was that audience engagement and fun that they kind of took, took um, they garnered some notice. Um, I know they published that it was um, ESPN's largest esports event um, in terms of numbers. They didn't publish the numbers, um, but they definitely got um, a big buzz out of it. And hopefully it's going to be a launching, it's going to help um, launch the, the new league in a way that, that maybe it wasn't before and give it a little more attention um, that perhaps it was, it, it, it was lacking. And to give you an idea in terms of numbers, the highest audience for the NBA 2K League is around 61,000 uh, viewers. Um, that's not, that's not uh, a lot, especially when you compare it to FIFA, which um, I know Matt, Matt just mentioned he plays a lot of. Uh, the highest peak for audience there is about 220,000. Now, to kind of give you the sense of how big esports is, the largest esports event um, has, has generated, you know, um, tens of millions. So, so there's, there's a big gap that needs to be closed there, but it's not, Axel, it's going to come through. Axel, would you say yep. that, um, you know, I find that sport video game, and it's interesting how you, you say that the, the virtual Kentucky Derby was an esport, and I, I use that as an umbrella term, and I use it um, loosely and kind of interchangeably in my research. It was something that um, be, a lot of the students say, wait a second, you know, esports is one thing, but it's sport video games or virtual. Mm -hmm. uh, you even saw with Madrid open with the virtual Murray won it, happened to win that one, which I happened to watch and I thought it was a little bit, you know, sim similar to watching the, actually the NBA players were okay, but the hockey players were very boring. Um, so do you, is it, the sport video games are still struggling to make money on this. Yeah, I, I think the, in, the more engaging experiences are the ones where you're actually watching the esports athletes play. When you get the professional athletes playing, you lose that enthusiasm. They're not as, they're just not as dynamic. They're not as, uh, that's, that's not what they do for a living. They haven't been media trained and all that. They don't, they haven't been broadcasting on social channels to 
you know, large audiences. And so they're basically brought in because they, they're big names and it's kind of fun to watch them sort of be a fish out of water, uh, but they're not, they, it doesn't translate to exciting uh, a fan experience. And that was the same thing for the NBA with the exception of Michael Beasley in the NBA, you know, it wasn't very dynamic um, in terms of the, the, you know, the interaction between you and the players. Hockey was a little different. Um, we can get into the EA NHL 20 because they did their own players challenge started on the 30th. Um, they get a, they're getting a bigger push in terms of some of the broadcast support. So it's all over all the NHL channels. It's on Sportsnet, um, uh, you know, on the NBC side and also here as well. So it's a, bitter, bitter, uh, it's a bigger platform. And they've learned, obviously, from the NBA. But it was a lot more fun to watch. Uh, you know, in the ways that you know, a hockey player would do to another hockey player, that was a lot of fun. Uh, were they great at the game? They were actually pretty good, but it was their banter back and forth that made it entertaining. And um, regarding the Kentucky Derby, yes, it's not esports, but it was a, it was a virtual experience, one that was replacing what would have been obviously a historic um, a race, and um, that was postponed to September. So it is going to happen hopefully eventually. But they didn't want to lose this date. The Kentucky Derby is always run on the first Saturday in May. And they ran the race as scheduled um, uh, uh, as part of a day-long Derby, Derby, uh, Kentucky Derby um, at-home party experience where they played old races, they did tons of interviews, and they even ran a, a computer-simulated race amongst all the Triple Crown uh, winners of the past. Um, so they called it the Triple Crown Showdown. It was a, a computer simulated race using data data algorithms and you know um, uh, um, handicapping info from from historical uh, data tropes and they ran it and of course you know secretary won but it was a close race it actually was quite fun to watch even though it was a computer sim uh, computer simulation but um, it was a way to kind of keep people engaged keep people at bay until the actual event runs later on in September. So these are not just sort of fun things people are doing. Uh, they're doing them because they need to hold onto those fans, those eyeballs, um, uh, because there's a constant threat they're going to go elsewhere. Uh, there's way too much out there in the digital space to tempt them. So, so it's about holding on to what you have worked so many years to, to build, to build. And on the NHL 20 side. Actually, um, you've, got 30, you've got 30 seconds. Okay. Um, I think that the, these are not money generated. These are all these events we've talked about, whether it's the, whether it's FIFA or NHL, NBA, MLS, um, uh, the English Premiership, all running similar uh, sort of a, a, a similar events involving players and celebrities and everybody. These are charity events. They're generating dollars for COVID. They're not generating money um, for their, their coffers. This is purely experimentation, holding on to their customers maintaining engagement throughout and doing some good um, uh, at, at the same time. Um, so, you know, the NBA 2K things are different. You know, it's a bona fide league. And so it'll be interesting to see how it does, how the numbers show uh, tomorrow, because I think it has a lot of uh, room to, uh, to grow and it has, it's a compelling product. Axel, thank you. We could listen to you all night. I, I think, uh, you know, between esports and women's sports and, and, uh, new actually well in the world of new formats this is a really great topic especially since there's a great way to be generating revenue which everyone is very concerned about um, we've never had this before so this is an interesting night we have four minutes to get through three topics but uh, Matt I want to be very conscientious of the time so um, 
before Matt goes, I want to jump over to student Q&A first, and then we'll go back to The Last Dance and some social by Chelsea Vernhout. So we do have a couple of students on here. Uh, Chelsea Vernhout, uh, who's a new graduate, and we have, well, Lindsay, you're welcome to, to join in on this. Matt Vicino and Natasha Kistoth. So uh, Natasha, Matt, where are you, Matt? If you want to come off, do you have any questions specifically for Matt? You each one get three three questions, and Matt has twenty seconds to answer them. I'm going to hold you to oh. it. <laughs> I am perfect. Uh, I have a Matt. quick question. I have a quick question for you, Matt. Earlier, you were talking about the border situation and saying how like that needs to open up in order for the CFL um, to start up again. Is there a loophole for CFL players because they're contracted employees like will that make it easier for them to cross the border good to see you matt um the way i would put it is this uh the cfl players themselves are, are kind of private contractors in a way right you sign a contract mm -hmm. and you it would, the duration of your contract you with that particular team i wonder depending on again the priority being health and safety if there are certain boxes checked and proper plans put in place that the league and federal government the cfl and federal government discuss Mm -hmm. uh, and again, this might all be contingent upon whether or not there's actually funding in that bridge loan. I could see a possible way that potentially, you know, those players and you wonder if there's some members of their families come up and they're all, well, they'd have to be quarantined right away for two weeks. But if there's a housing plan, I could see a potential whereby players could come up here, even if the border was closed for, you know, usual traffic that they can come up and actually still be a part of the league. Thank you, Natasha. Thanks. Natasha or Chelsea? You there? Um, hi. Hi, Natasha. Hi. No, it's okay. I'm here with my dad. Um, anyways, I was just wondering, because there's a lot of talk about a second wave, of COVID-19 coming like in the fall or in the winter, how do you think um, organizations um, would have to prepare for that? If they did go back to a season or modified their seasons, what kind of modifications do you think would come if there were to be a second wave? Well, according to a report that just came out with the New York Times and it was also in the Washington Post, that second wave could be coming real quick in the next number of weeks uh, now that we've seen some of the decisions made by some U.S. states to open up probably earlier than they should be. Um, that will undoubtedly affect everything. Um, if there is a spike in cases, you know, as much as, you know, this is my job and we're all here talking and, um, you know, dreaming about a, 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 a return to some kind of normal with sports. The fact is that there is a huge spike in cases and the number reported by the New York Times does come to pass. And that number is something that had been discussed within the, the halls of, of the US government. Uh, that would basically make everything moot. I mean, the fact is health and safety are of primary importance. And, and, speed, and, and when you see the reports by Adam Silver and um, or Adrian Wojnarowski had just came out with something uh, we're kind of dissecting what the NBA might do. The fact is it's all contingent upon health and safety guidelines. And ultimately, it's going to be up to the players. This is the thing. This is really going to bring labor relations to the fore because as much as owners uh, and board of governors want to get their product out there for revenue, the fact is you don't have a sport without players. So if players don't want to play because of 
you know, obvious health and safety concerns, they will not play. So I, 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 I'm interested to see how the re labor relations side of this, how it, uh, how it plays out over the next really couple of weeks. Yeah, I agree. Dan, uh, do you have some rapid fire for Matt? We've got, uh, we have a session here that's called rapid yeah. fire and Dan Berlin is going to fire a few questions at you, Matt, and you Super. really can answer. And, and it's, it's not just because we're over time here, uh, but you really can only answer one word or one sentence and it's five. Ooh, okay. Solid. Okay. Here it is, here Matt. 10 questions. First thing that comes to your mind, I've moved on to who wants to be a millionaire set on here. Right? <laughs> lighting for this segment okay we're going to begin okay in, in your opinion will the cfl have a season this year no outside of the cfl what's your favorite sport to cover uh ooh. you know i'm going to go off the board uh and it requires a lot more context um women's hockey and another at a later date i'll, I'll explain why okay um, what is your least favorite sport to cover? The NHL was my least favorite sport to cover. And I guess very quickly, I did not grow up a hockey fan I, for a number of reasons. And I fell in love with the game. I, I, was, I, I did not want to cover the NHL. Uh, people at TSN know this. I had kind of, it, I, it wasn't, my, wasn't my bag of goods. And then I went to the 2018 Olympics and I got a chance to cover and follow the women's team and, and developed a very good working relationship with uh, briefly Poulain. And uh, the women's game and what happened through their run to unfortunately get a silver that time uh, reignited my passion for hockey. And so that's, that's kind of answers both those questions, I guess. Matt, I'd like to reiterate, this is a rapid fire question. I know, I know. <laughs> Sometimes context is important, Dan, but anyway. I love it, buddy. I'm just pulling your chain. All right. Um, as a fan, your favorite team in any sport? Manchester United. Your least favorite team? Liverpool. Childhood sports hero. Eric Cantona. Best venue you've ever been to. Old Trafford. Past or present, your favorite sports writer. Gary Smith. Past or present, your favorite sports commentator. Rod Smith. And finally, your favorite pair of Chuck Taylors. Uh, I, I, I saw the Twitter. Um, earlier about the, the ones I'd be wearing tonight. I'm not wearing them because of inside my house, but just very quickly, I did want to show them, uh, given everything that's happened in the East Coast, the East Coast is very close to my heart, everything that happened in Halifax, and obviously with our Canadian service uh, members, I do have a pair that were created by a, a local artist in Halifax. Uh, that's Theodore Tugboat on the, um, the shores of the Halifax Harbor. So Halifax, uh, Hopewell Rocks in New Brunswick, uh, Jellybean Row in uh, St. John's and the Confederation Bridge to Prince Edward Island. Over the last year, these have become my favorite pair of chucks. Well done. <laughs> awesome. Very well done, Matt. Well done. So, Matt, uh, for the rapid fire. Thank you. Thank you for the rapid fire, uh, Prof. Boomer. Um, any, Matt? Do you have a one? You have a couple more minutes, or you, if you if you got to go, that's that's totally fine. No, I, 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 uh, I absolutely, and, and, and I just want to add this very quickly, and, and not to have the last word at all, but I want to give the last word to someone, uh, Natalie Cook, an executive at TSN, and the reason I want to bring this in is I just want to bring everybody into a discussion I had with her because she came in to, uh, to be the new executive VP of, of, of on-air content and, and um, uh, on-air talent. I, I don't like using the word on-air talent, but I had a discussion with her, and 
I was hopeful that the narrative was starting to change because one thing she kept talking about was what are what what stories around women's sports would you want to would 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 you want to be talking about you know basically it was come and give me not like grand ideas of a you know, give me very particular ideas that we could execute as a network and I I found that I'm hoping that that's a, an indication of things to come. Amazing. Thank you for that. And yeah, we're all fans of uh, Natalie Cook. So that's, she's been an advocate for, for women in sport and that equality for a very long time. Joe, are you there still? I don't see you. I just see a black screen. It's frozen. Oh, <laughs> all right. So my, my screen went frozen. All right. The, the, what I'm thinking about right now is the Olympic dream team, 1992 roster. Um, I'm sure, I don't know, I would imagine if you haven't already, then you will be tonight tuning into The Last Dance. It's what um, I'm doing. As soon as I get off of this, I'm going to go watch it. That's, that's exactly what I'll be doing. Last week we asked you, Joe, and I think, um, you know, you missed on this one. Tony Luchasano called me later and said, you know, The Last Dance is the Michael Jordan of documentaries. Hmm. So it's something to think about. This is the Olympic dream team and they they're, it's all about uh, you've got asking Kobe questions and about that uh, that time that era. Joe, have you seen it yet? Yeah, I'm already um, through the first four episodes. So five and six now that have dropped, I'm going to go on to next. I love it. I think it's fantastic. And uh, like I said last week, the one silver lining in that there isn't live sports is that now there's a lot of these kind of really high quality sports documentaries out there that I think people now are, are, are kind of getting a taste of and you're going to get more um, interested in watching other kinds of sports docs. I just also, when I was doing a little research on this tonight, was looking at the BBC and, and, say, and they've said that um, The Last Dance has already now overtaken Tiger King. Like Tiger King was so big at the beginning of the pandemic and now The Last <laughs> Dance goodness. has overtaken it. Thankfully. Yes. <laughs> yes. So Matt, you'll be pleased. Uh, Matt also serves on our advisory for the RTA uh, sport media program. And Joe, do you want to uh, give Matt some good news about one of your, um, uh, some of our students that have just sold their doc? Well, yeah, I also did pass that on to Matt and the rest of the uh, program advisory committee that uh, some of the fourth year students that did a documentary on um, the Scotiabank uh, Marathon back in October uh, it was ex excellent documentary and they sold it to Athletics Canada. It's on their website. So if you actually go to the Athletics Canada website, you'll find Unbounded, which is produced by Justin Narrow, um, Zach Underhill, um, Emily Kanoya, Kanoya and um, Stephen Sahoyas. And they and Matt was there at the pitch at the beginning of the year where they were actually yep. pitching to do something on hockey. And we were all saying they're not going to get the access. They're not going to get the access. And we still kind of let them go ahead. And they found out within very few weeks that they weren't going to get the access. And they were a team. We, it was funny because we actually knew that at the pitch meeting, they were probably going to have to pivot and do something different. And I remember saying, this is a group of people that will be able to pivot if they need to. And they actually did. And I think they ended up with a, like a happy accident, a big surprise and a way better documentary than the, what they probably envisioned at the very beginning of the season, trying to do something on hockey players. Awesome, I, that'll be on my, uh, I did see that email and uh, I, I got buried under a bunch of 
assignments that have come in, but I am absolutely going to go ahead and watch that. That's, that's really good because I do remember us talking about that. Um, and I'm glad that they were able to pivot, as, as you said, and, and execute something. So I will definitely watch that, Jill. Yeah, good. And just I'm for not. the group, if I can just jump in, it followed Reed Coolsat, who is a marathoner out of Hamilton. And uh, we're going forward into our phase four Olympic programming. And I'm going to see if I can get it part of our CBC Olympic programming, at least on the website. They don't know that yet. And I have to, again, to your point, I might sit at the, at the table, but I'm not the only voice at the table. But I think it'd be great since it does follow an Olympic athlete. So I, it was very good. Very good for those guys. Strong work. Awesome. Fantastic. So thank you, Karen, for that. And Joe, uh, finally, we come to the conclusion. We've got um, something that we find uh, to be very popular, and it seems to have slowed down a little bit, Matt, but athletes on social media. Every week I talk about LeBron James and what he's doing. And I happened to watch him cycling. He, he posted on Instagram, him cycling on his bike, and he started off and he ended you know, a really good workout. But Chelsea each week um, weighs in on uh, some, some, uh, some really interesting things. And Myers Leonard is doing some neat things, Chelsea. So I'd like you to weigh in on that. And then Matt, you can tell us uh, who you're following and what you think is cool about the athletes on social. Chelsea. Well, I wanted to highlight Myers, Miles Leonard because he's killing it not only on social media, but in the esports realm as well. He just finished up the Hammer Classic, which was a Call of Duty Warzone uh, tournament, um, all for raising money uh, towards Feeding America. His goal was to feed a million people, and uh, I think he definitely reached that goal. Um, but he's the stuff that he's posting, I think even uh, Sportsnet and TSN even reposted um, him and his wife doing trick shots. Um, if anything, on TikTok, his wife is actually even killing it even more, uh, doing all these trick shots and kind of giving him a run for his money. Um, so I like the play between them two. Um, and it just, again, shows the personality, um, which I think is uh, definitely good to highlight um, in any point. Um, kind of like what you said, Matt, where in tennis, the athletes are their brand and they're exposed and they're creating themselves. Uh, so I think it's a good uh, example of how an athlete is kind of taking on that role, because I think all athletes need to take on that role. Matt. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 you know, I was actually reluctant to get on TikTok. And then uh, I saw what Brandon Gallagher was doing with his take on Brooklyn Nine-Nine and then The Office. And I said, well, you know, if he, if, if he can, and I've always kind of appreciated Brandon Gallagher and, and um, um, you know, interacting with him in, in, in locker rooms and, and just his personality. So I thought, you know what, I'll, I'll give it a try myself. Uh, I, I've loved seeing the at-home element for, for some athletes, obviously we see, you know, PK Subban um, had been, had been doing uh, so much. Um, but I, I really, I, I, I love the authenticity uh, about it. Um, love seeing, you know, Jill Sonier uh, with her beer pong shot challenge. That was, that was awesome. I, I, well, the one thing I, I find, and I can only speak for TSM, uh, is that I've, I've, I've enjoyed and tried to make myself available whenever I can to our, our digital department and our, our digital sports center, because it really, I think, is the place where we are having to evolve. And I tell my colleagues all the time, you know, we should be interacting with, with players on social media. We should be willing to do stuff with them on social media. And I think that's, especially now, it's going to be accelerated. That is where the next level of content creation is going to occur is um, personalities, people on air interacting with 
with athletes on social media. So I, uh, I, not to say that I'm, I, I, I haven't interacted with Brandon Gallagher. I want to do a TikTok. I think they're TikTok duets or whatever. But if given the opportunity, I absolutely would. Well, I just wanted to point out too that I'm a huge fan of TSN's Digital Sports Center. I think TSN stands out from all of the other broadcasts in terms of social media. Um, love Marissa Roberto. Love that she's the yep. face of Digital Sports Center, um, and everything she brings to the table, especially with her passion for esports, which is uh, definitely something that we want to grow. Um, but yeah, I think you guys are definitely off to a great start um, with your graphics um, and, and everything on social. So I'm excited to see where you guys keep going with it. Yeah, and, and part of it too is e e personalities come out and, and um, even like there's a platform there that I find that's on social media that um, it's, it's kind of democratized in a way. It's, it's not just here's the anchor sitting at the desk on that broadcast. Again, not to go ahead and just pump TSN tires for the sake of pumping them but even the guy who cuts into the graphics Eric is a character in and of himself on the show as well and you know I, I'm, I'm on digital sports center occasionally and I I do enjoy going on there and kind of playing the role of you know the aw shucks reporter who's you know dorky and 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 they love poking fun at and I think that's that's the brilliant that's the brilliant um access point about uh social media and especially sports is that um, you don't have to take yourself seriously. And I was just saying this to Laurel before we all came on is that presentation is evolving and changing, especially now. And, you know, Marissa Roberto doing the, you know, uh, Welcome to Digital Sports Center at my house and just the way that she presents herself and the way that the other people come in, like Craig Button, mm -hmm. uh, Kate Burness has done stuff, just different segments. It's really added a different identity. And I think that's the one good thing about what we've tried to do with TSN, we've, we've made these um, not exclusive identities, but um, every like bar down and digital sports center and TSN, they all have different personalities and, and, and they kind of broaden and give TSN more of an eclectic <clears throat> feel on our social media. And I think, um, I, I hope that uh, that evolves. And I've been telling, like, not to repeat myself, but I've been telling our colleagues, this is where, you know, we, especially now, because to be blunt, we're not, I don't want to say that we're justifying our existence necessarily, but we're all showing what we can do uh, in this new reality. And I think we all have to be open to social media, interact with athletes on social media and, and doing things and creating content um, in, in the most creative way possible, because people, especially now are going to be consuming content uh, sports content specifically in a number of different ways. Exactly. So thank you so much, uh, everyone, for joining Sport Talks, Sport Talks with Sport Profs. Uh, I'd like to say a special thank you to Matt Shinetti for joining us this evening and being a good sport. I'm surprised your uh, tunnel walk challenge hasn't gone viral. I think that actually could be one that could be <laughs> <laughs> I liked in particular. <laughs> Yeah, you know what? I, 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 anyone who knows me knows I'm, I'm the first. I, I love a good punchline, especially if I'm the punchline. Um, so I'm, I'm all down. Anytime someone, um, I mean, for crying out loud, I'm the guy who dropped the pass on live TV. So I'm, I'm totally, I'm totally okay. If anyone throws a challenge or anything my way, I'm the first person. I'll be like, yeah, absolutely, whatever it is, I'll do it. So thank you, Prof. Joe. Uh, thank you, Prof. Berlin Boomer. Uh, Prof. We also have Prof. Uh, Sebesta. And I'd also like to thank our special guests this evening, Axel Lilmanis, 
um, Anka Jess from She's for Sports, and as well, Chelsea Vernout, who is our social media expert as well. Thank you very much. We'll see you next week. Next week, we've got um, a, a dear colleague, I'm sure, of all of yours, Jamie Campbell, who will be joining us um, on next Monday, 8 p.m. on Sport Talks. Have a good evening, everyone.